Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come to minister to us. I pray that you would release light and life in this house as you teach us and you instruct our hearts in the knowledge of God. And we say with Paul that we may know him, that we may know him. We would count all things as loss for the sake of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. So God, I'm asking, release revelation, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Even this morning, we look to you, we look to you to instruct us. In the name of Jesus, everybody said amen. Amen. Well, we're going to start a new series uh, this morning uh, on the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. So turn with me in your Bible to Job chapter 36. Several years ago, uh, I began to uh, meditate on this verse in Job 36, and I began to realize that there's much of God that I don't know. I spent a long time in Christianity. You know, it's kind of like this. You get the main points down. You know, you get the, the main things down. You go, okay, God, okay, he loves me, and I'm... Uh, I believe in him, so I'm not going to hell. And you get sort of the main basic ideas down. You have about 50 verses that you know. You can quote about 50 verses. And you, and you figure, yeah, you pretty much got it. You know, you, you don't you quit cussing. You don't go to R-rated movies anymore, you know. And just kind of be a good person. And, and uh, you know, if you're going to be exceptional, you go on a missions trip or something like that. You feed the poor every now and then. And, and that's really, I mean, that's, after a while, you kind of think, well, that's, that's it. That's Christianity in this life. That's about as good as it gets. There's some people that are special, and they might have miracle ministries of some sort. And, and basically, the rest of us, we just give them money so they can go heal everybody. And we just kind of, we kind of check out. You know, you, you get saved, you get the basics down, and you sort of check out because you think you basically know everything. And... Um, my testimony goes like this. I was saved uh, as a young man um, in, my, in my late teens and uh, was, you know, really fired up for the Lord and, and, and served God um, aggressively with my heart. Just, just, I thought, you know, I was going real hard for the devil and, and, and he hated me. I'm going to go hard for God and he loves me. And so as hard as I went for the devil, I'm going to do that for Jesus. And and, you know, after a little while, you kind of get to where, you know, you're, you're reading your Bible and, and you, and you kind of learn a few things. And, and I got to begin to teach a few things. And the next thing I know, I was, I was a, a youth pastor and I was teaching people the, the scripture. Now, I'd never been to, the, to any kind of a, a school or anything, but because I'd studied, I had a little bit, little bit more, a half an inch more than, than those that were around me. And so I began to, to teach and preach. And then God began to bless our ministry. And, and I began to get invitations to travel and and I was doing that, and for a long time, our youth ministry began to grow, and uh, I was traveling, and, and uh, seeing as somebody that was fired up for God and knew the Lord, and, and when the Lord did was He shifted our lives, and He moved us to Kansas City in 2003, and um, 2003, yeah, and, uh, and so what happened was I got around a bunch of young people. I was in my mid-30s that time, and and uh, I got around a bunch of young people, and these young people, they're 24, 25, 26 years old, they knew more than 50 verses. They knew a lot more. They were quoting scripture that I'd, I wasn't even sure was in the Bible. 
And they didn't just have thoughts, you know, that were, you know, uh, I guess the, the main 50 things we think about God. All of a sudden, they had, they had understanding that was deeper than uh, anything I had encountered. And the thing that was re- it really tweaked me was this. Many of them ha- had been saved long, uh, less time than I had been in the ministry. I had been in the ministry longer than many of them had even been born again. I can remember sitting around a table with some 25 and 26-year-old leaders there in the House of Prayer in Kansas City and thinking to myself, I better not open my mouth because I don't know anything. And that was a humbling experience because some of them were 10 years younger than me and had, like I said, been saved less time than I'd been in the ministry. And, and I realized that they knew God in a way that I had no clue. Now, I'd been the person that, you know, I, I was invited to many conferences and spoke at different places and, and youth ministry things around the nation. And here I was transitioning into this new role where we were going to come back to Atlanta and plan the house of prayer. But I was looking at all these young people. They knew God and they knew the, the Bible, and I didn't. I mean, I knew the 50 verses, maybe 75 or whatever, 100. They knew a lot more. And it wasn't that I was like in awe because, wow, they can quote, quote a lot of verses. There was a depth of the knowledge of God residing in their heart that was rooted in intimacy and they understood more than things about God. They, it was like they were explaining God in a way they knew his ways. You know, it's like the psalm says, the children of Israel, they saw the acts. They saw the acts of the Lord, but Moses knew his ways. And there's a different place that you come to where you actually begin to understand the heart of the Lord and you begin to know his ways. And what those 25-year-olds had, it so challenged me. It so convicted me because <clears throat> I'd been around a while, been saved about 15 years. And, uh, and there, what they had seemed like a, such a powerful and possessious, uh, pe- uh, precious possession, possessious, precious possession. It seemed like such a precious thing that I just had rarely encountered. Just rarely encountered. And, uh, and I, in that moment, I was convicted and I said, God, I don't know you, but I want to know you. I want to know you. And through fasting and prayer and through studying the scriptures, I'm not going to just be one that lives this life knowing the basics and doing the basics. I'm going to be one that all the days of my life, I'm going to pursue the knowledge of who you are. And what I realized was this, one of the biggest hurdles that Christians have to overcome is believing that they already know. You know, we kind of think we already know everything, and because of that, we end up stunted in our growth, and we, we are unteachable because we've got a certain amount of experience, but we don't comprehend that our level of experience compared to all that's available in experience is really, really small. And there's so much more to know. 
And I remember when I began to first start looking at the book of Revelation, for instance, and I began to look at Revelation chapter 4 and the, the, the discussion of the throne room. And, and, and there it is. It's 24 elders on 24 thrones. And they're, they've got white robes and crowns on their head. And it doesn't ever say what these elders are. It just says they're elders. It doesn't say if they're men or angels. It just says elders. And then it says there's, there's lamps before the throne and burning. And then it says there's these, these living creatures flying around the throne. And they've got wings. And they've got eyes covering them. And I thought to myself, that's the weirdest thing I can think of. They're covered in eyes, like the back of their head and then their back and wherever. And I begin to think, that's so strange. And I thought, you know, and it says, and, and the one that sat on the throne, he's like a jasper. And he's like a sordius. He's like diamond and ruby. And he's, you know, got multiple colors. And you, you begin to look at John's language there. And, and basically everything John does is he says, he is like, he is as. He's not giving us any um, specific descriptions because he can't. Because the words don't accurately portray. It's just the best he can do with what he's seeing. And these, these uh, winged creatures with eyes covering them, they're, they're, they're looking at the throne and they're saying all day and all night, holy, 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 holy. They're saying he's other than, he's other than, he's other than, he's other than anything I've ever seen. That's what the, the, that's what the, the living creatures around the throne are saying. And I remember when I first looked at that, I thought, that's the strangest scene ever. And there's a sea of glass before the throne. And I thought, and there's multitudes around the throne, angels and the redeemed before the throne. And, and later in chapter 15, it says there's a, a fire, it, it, it's, there's a, like a fire in that sea of glass. And Daniel 7 says a fiery stream comes out of that throne. And I thought, I, I can't, I can't even get around, that's, you know, there's just times when you read the Bible and you kind of go, that's just one of those weird verses. You're just going to have to leave that one alone. And that's where I was at. I was like, that's just one of those weird verses. You know, you don't go off the deep end into those. Stay, you know, in the middle of the road. Well, then I realized, well, the whole Bible is in the middle of the road. Amen. It's all in the middle of the road. It's the Bible. There's not, you know, something you can get off into the left or into the right. This is the scripture. And if God put it in the scripture, he wants us to be acquainted with it. And then I begin to think about this. If his throne room is strange to me, who's the one that's actually strange? Is it God or is it me? Who's the one that doesn't have understanding? Is it God or is it me? If living creatures with multiple wings and one's got an eagle and one's got a lion head and One's got an ox and one's got a man head. If that's strange to me, is it me or is it God? And I realize, guess what? It's me. I'm the one that lacks understanding. He's not weird. I'm just dim. I begin to understand this, that I don't know him the way I want to know him. 
And I've been in this place and for the last six years just, just making it my hobby to know God. Just, it's just a continual, uh, one of the reset buttons of my heart where I just come back and say, okay, I've got to know you, Lord. I, I don't know you the way I want to know you, but I've got to, and so I'm going to continue to pursue knowing you. And what I came to grips with was this about six years ago that most of my preaching for the previous 13 or 14 years had been based on telling people what to do, telling people what God wanted them to do, and very little of my preaching was about who is God. It was mostly about what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to be like, and it was very little about what is God like. And I've come to believe this, that the, the key to the human heart, the key to the human existence is not finding out more lists of things we're supposed to do. It's actually finding out more of who he is. For in comprehending him, we live and move and have our being. That's where we are alive, is through knowing God. Not through finding out lists of, of do's and don'ts and things we ought to do and, and things we need to brush up on. In fact, I think this. Every bondage, every problem, every issue that we face in life, it's not about finding out specifics you need to do. It's a knowledge of God issue. For the more you know him, the less your heart will be locked onto other things that bind. And when you know him, you are attracted to him, and your heart becomes un unlocked in the knowledge of him and other things, lesser attractions and lesser pleasures, they will begin to fade in their, in their, um, in their aura. They, they won't have an attraction. Their enamor will fade, and, and you will be drawn into God. And as you're drawn into God, your heart comes alive, and it's from there that you actually can live. It's like A.W. Tozer said. He said, the man who comes to a right knowledge of God is relieved of, I think he said, thousands of lesser problems. And it's what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 10, that every attack of the enemy is exalted against the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Who is God? What is God like? And so I want to just take us on a few weeks on a journey just talking about God. Just want to talk about the thing that's the, my favorite thing to talk about. God. Set our minds on the thing that's the most liberating, most exciting, exhilarating. God. Let's think on God. Let's focus on God. And let's hopefully come to a higher view of God than we've had up till now. And I find this, that my view of God, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes I'm really locked into who is God, and then at other times my circumstances and voices and other things, they begin to drive down and lower my view of God. But I realize this, that when my view of God is, is higher when I'm seeing him. As high. You, know, you, you can't make him any higher, but when I'm seeing him rightly, when I'm viewing him rightly, and I'm seeing him high and lifted up, all of a sudden my heart comes alive, it's free, it's unlocked, and then the problems in my life, they actually come into proper perspective. 
All of a sudden, the issues of life, they begin to lose their power because my heart is alive in the revelation of a God who's uncreated. <laughs> and so Job 36, 26, this, this little verse, it's just, it just continues to be a banner for my heart. And I just love it because the story of Job is an interesting story. You have Job and you have these interesting negative things that happens to him. Then you have his three friends and they show up. And when they see him, Job is so smitten, they sit there silent for seven days looking at Job. I mean, what is that like? I mean, he's covered in boils. I mean, he's, he's you know, scraping them with rocks. Dogs are licking the boils. And the friends come up and they're like, <laughs> for seven days, speechless. Well, after that, they begin to say all sorts of things to Job. And the problem is, to chapter 32, they say all sorts of things to Job, many of which are not right portrayals of God. And then finally, in chapter 32, this young man named Elihu, he begins to, he says this, he goes, I've sat here long enough, I've been quiet quite a time. He goes, I tell you what, I'm getting a little angry with what you're saying. <laughs> And he begins to rightly portray who God is. And, and from 32 to, to 37, he proclaims the knowledge of God. And, and, he, and he gives a right proclamation of the knowledge of God. And after he speaks, God shows up in a whirlwind. It's one of my favorite uh, theophanies where God shows up in, in the, all of Scripture. God shows up, he thunders from a whirlwind, and he says to Job, he says, Who are you who darken counsel? with words that have no understanding. Because Job had said prior, he said, listen, if God would show up, I would tell him, and I would justify myself to him. And God goes, I'll show up, no problem. Whirlwind, who are you, little man? That's what he says. He goes, do you know how I make snow? Do you know how I make rain? He goes, let's bring it down a notch. Do you know how I make these animals? Do you know how I do anything? And Job ends up, he says, I heard about you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. I put my face to the dust, my hand to my mouth, because I have no understanding of who you are. Well, in the middle of that, Elihu, for five chapters, he's proclaiming the right knowledge of God. And he says it right there in Job 36, 26. Behold, our God is great, and we do not know him. Behold, our God is great, and we do not know him. It's exactly what Paul the Apostle said when he got knocked from his horse. Who are you, Lord? And then as a mature apostle, even writing to the Philippians, he said, that I may know him. That I may know him. Talking about the knowledge of God as something that he would come to attain to, but that he hadn't actually grasped yet. And I would say this, if Paul the Apostle says, I want to know him, you and I, definitely need to get in that category of people saying, we don't know him and we want to. Behold, our God is great and we do not know him. He's greater than what we've conceived. He's greater than what we've thought. Every thought that we have of God is actually inferior to him because our thoughts are not able to contain the one whose greatness is unsearchable. Your most lofty thought of God 
is only a representation of his greatness, it doesn't actually do it justice. He's above everything we've ever thought he was. He's better than you and I think he is. All of his attributes are far superior than anything we've ever conceived. This is God. And what we've done is we've entertained and made thoughts about God that are, that are not like him. They're not worthy of him. And I know I have. I've made God at times a little bigger than myself. I look at my problems and they're huge and God just a little bit bigger than me. And sort of like, oh God, if you could just work real hard and fix my problem. He's uncreated. I mean, uncreated? He knows the end from the beginning? How can I make him slightly bigger than myself? What happens is when we think thoughts about God like that, like he's just a little bit bigger than us, we enslave ourselves to inferior thoughts about God. And all that just amounts to is idolatry. Because we've made in our own image a God of our own liking. With thoughts that are infinitely inferior to who he actually is. And we've become enslaved to a low image of God. Not rightly conceiving of him and the greatness of who he is. Psalm 50 verse 21, he says to the wicked, you thought I was altogether like you. He goes, but I'm going to rebuke you and set everything in order. (laughs) I love that verse. He goes, you thought to the wicked. He goes, you thought I was just like you. He goes, with one rebuke, I will set the record straight. I think that's funny. Isaiah 55, 8, it's one of the hundred verses we already know. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. At the core of all of our problems, beloved, lies a a low image of God. And just like the children of Israel, we've created an idol out of God who is not an idol. God God who is far greater than any idol. God who stands before all the nations and they, they all together are as nothing before him. I love what Tozer said. He said, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. Manageable terms, as if God could be managed. He says, an idol of the mind is is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. Because that's really where our idolatry exists. It's in our minds. We think inferior thoughts about God, and we are the ones that become enslaved to them, not God. So that's our, that's our hope over the next few weeks is to, to get a higher vision, uh, 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 to get a, a, a more true vision of who God is. He's great, David said, and his greatness is unsearchable. And that we would be a people that would humble ourselves before him and say, behold, you are great, and we don't know you, but we want to search you out. 
We want to find you. We want to find out everything we can of you. We want to know you. I was looking at that verse in 1 Corinthians this week, in chapter 13, just a verse you all know. And, and it says, uh, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. I thought about that. The most enlightened, the most revelatory, the most wise person, the most well-instructed, the person with the greatest knowledge in this age, on their best day, they're as one seeing dimly through a glass. The highest one that we've got, the, the most enlightened human being we've got, a glass darkly. And that glass darkly is talking about the ancient mirror, which all it was, all it really mattered to, uh, amounted to is a shined up piece of metal. That was the old mirror. <laughs> got a piece of metal, shine it up as good as you can, and you sort of see like, okay, I've got hair. Good, there it is. <laughs> like that's about as good as you can tell. He says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but think about this one. But then face to face. Let that set on you. Your destiny far supersedes anything you'll accomplish in this age. Your destiny has you on a collision course with gazing on what the Lord told would kill Moses. You're going to see him face to face. And then he says this really, I don't even know how to describe it, messed up phrase. He says, and though you know in part now, he goes, in that day, you'll know as you are fully known. And I start short-circuiting right there. Because how can you know the one whose greatness is unsearchable in the same way that that one knows you? This is going to get fun. For a long time, we're going to gaze into the face of the one who is eternal, the one who is perfection, the one who is beauty, the one who is majesty, we're going to gaze into his face and knowledge is going to begin to overwhelm our senses forever. Your destiny is far greater than anything you'll accomplish in this age. It all counts in this age. I don't want to diminish uh, our, our destinies in this age. It all counts and it's all important in the kingdom. But there is something so much greater coming for you. Face to face and knowing fully even as you are fully known. So I was studying again on the knowledge of God and it just began a, a, maybe a month ago. And uh, there's a term that I want to I just introduce us to and you've heard the term. I don't know if, I, I didn't understand it until I actually just began to look at it. I thought it meant something completely else, completely different. But the, uh, the term is transcendence. Transcendence. Transcend, S-C-E-N-D, E-N-C-E, transcendence. I thought it meant the God who can break into time, like transcend 
the gap, the chasm. But it doesn't mean that at all. It means something completely different than that. And when I began to actually consider this term transcendence, it's not a, a biblical term, though the Bible gives us plenty of verses that identify him as transcendent. When I began to understand he is the God who is transcendent, something, something unlocked in my heart. Because I began to understand him in a whole different way. Now, before I define it, let me just give you a few thoughts. The Bible says in the New King James Version, 53 times, God is most high. Most high. And we understand high, that term is not speaking of elevation. It's speaking in a human way of what we consider to be exalted, lofty, greater. He's most greater, most exalted, most lofty. 53 times in the New King James Version. 50 times in the NAS, 58 in the NIV, just in case you're wondering. 53 times, most high, most high. Psalm 97, verse 9, it says, For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. I love that. I love that song that we sing to that psalm. Wonderful. He's most high. Most high. You could walk around for an hour saying you are most high, and I promise you, you'd only begin to scratch the surface on the truth of what that really means. Most high. Most high. Most high. 57 times the New King James Version refers to him as the Almighty. The Almighty. Here's the thing. If he's the most high, by definition, that means no one else is most high. And if he's the almighty, by definition, no one else is almighty. He's the only one. Almighty. We like to use the term omnipotent, all-powerful. That's our God. Revelation 4.8, those living creatures that fly around the throne... They do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. What? Lord God Almighty. 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 Who's this one that you're intimate with? He's the most high. He's the Almighty. The Almighty. The Almighty. 43 times in the New King James, he's referred to as the Holy One. The Holy One. The Holy One. I love that. The Holy One. No one else is holy. No one else is, is, is as distinct and pure. No one else is as other. He's the Holy One. Isaiah 22 times calls him the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One. The Almighty. The Most High. See, those terms about God, they deserve meditation. They deserve for us to lock our minds to them and consider what does this mean and what are its implications about who is God and what does it mean to me? We brush over them like they're, you know, given, you know? He's almighty. Okay, got that. Let's move on. Now, what does almighty even mean? What does it mean for you and I? Almighty, that's the one we serve. He's also referred to, just a few of the names I thought were good. I like it. 
Isaiah calls him the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. <laughs> the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Daniel calls him the ancient of days. The ancient of days. And multiple times he's referred to as the everlasting. The everlasting God. The everlasting God. Moses called him the everlasting God. So what is this idea of transcendent? Well, I'll tell you what. I was walking around the prayer room. I was meditating on it. And when it actually clicked for me, I just began to laugh. It unlocked my heart in such a way that my emotions immediately followed. That place where I had carved out some, some room in my mind and put God in that box, all of a sudden that room got shattered and God became, in my mind, greater than he had been before. And I began to laugh. The transcendent God, the transcendent God is the one that we have to do with. Now here's how it goes. In created order, we tend to think of things on a continuum. We tend to think, think of things as certain things are lesser and certain things are higher, certain things are greater. We would maybe, if we were to, to lay out a continuum of, of created things, things that exist, we would say, well, an, an amoeba, you know, the low kind of just single cell organism, whatever. And then you go to maybe something like a worm and then maybe to like a fish going up the continuum, maybe a bird. And then maybe you'd go, you know, like a, a dog. And then you go like smart animals, like a dolphin. And then you go people. And then angels and God. And we kind of think of those things that exist on this continuum. The problem with thinking about the things that exist on a continuum is that there is no continuum that should include God. Here's why. As far above the angels as God is, he is also that far above the amoebas. We understand there's a great uh, distance between angels and amoebas. We get that. But from God's vantage point, they're the same. <laughs> and the difference is this. From angels, from the highest archangel down to the single cell, whatever, all of that is created. It's of one order. It's all within the same order. God is not included in that order. He is of a completely other order all to himself. He is not to be included in that continuum of things that exist, for he is not of that continuum. He is completely different. He is fully other than. He is outside of that continuum, and that's what it means to say that he is transcendent. Fully above. As high as he is above an angel, he is also that high above an amoeba because on the scale of what exists, the amoeba and the angel are this close and God is infinitely far. And when that hit me, all of a sudden, faith arose in my heart because no longer am I now just praying to the God who's like a little bigger than angels, a little stronger than humans. Now, I, something unlocked, and I said, wait a minute. 
I'm praying to the God of another order that's completely other than anything that exists. Everything that exists is in one little pot, and he is out of the box. As I begin to think about that God, the greatness of the God who has no beginning and has no end, the Alpha and the Omega God, the God who is holy, who, who multi-winged, I mean, multi-winged cherubic beings, living creatures with eyes all over, they, when they look at him, they say, holy. The main thing they say is, you're other. When I begin to see him in that light, all of a sudden something unlocked in me. I thought, oh, I've made you too small in my eyes. I've made you a little bit bigger than myself. And those words of that psalm maybe just begin to ring. You thought I was altogether like you, but I'm not. He is of another order, beloved. He is transcendent. And so when he says in Isaiah 55, as high as the heavens are above the earth, we think that's measurable. He's trying to say it's immeasurable. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. I don't think like you. I don't act like you. I am altogether not like you. He's transcendent. He's transcendent. I love what David said. About him in First Chronicles 29, verse 11, he said this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Exalted, exceedingly, infinitely exalted over all. That's our God. So when we worship, we're worshiping the God that's transcendent. We're worshiping this God that's of a different order. We're worshiping the God who's timeless in his existence. I love that one definition, the being who has no beginning. (laughs) That's God. The being that has no beginning. And so I think we've encroached upon the knowledge of God by considering him to be smaller than he is, making him out to be manageable. That's our normal tendency. But how how do you manage the God that's not even of our same order? Everything that exists is created, and he is not. Everything that exists is finite, and he is not. God is great, and we do not know him. We do not know him. And beloved, when you meditate on that, it sends a thrill into your soul. 
because you recognize this thing is so much bigger than we've made it to be. Christianity is so much bigger than some sort of, you know, uh, religious duty or some sort of system of belief or some sort of even community of faith. We're talking about the God of all creation. The uncreated one has actually come and become a man. And therein is the, the second term I, wanted to, I just want to touch on, condescension. So the first one's transcendence. The second one is condescension. Because what makes them so powerful to me is when I think of them side by side. The God that is transcendent is also infinitely condescending. And, and see, what we tend to do is we think of that term condescending as one who looks down on another. But it also means this, one who stoops down for another. And God is divinely condescending in that he continually and thoroughly stoops down for you and I. And that's, beloved, for me, that's where <laughs> this thing gets so I mean, explosive. Because he's great. He's greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He's far above all things. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He is, I mean, surpassing in his excellence. He's transcendent. He is the most high. He is transcendent. And he sets his heart on people. That's unbelievable. Condescension means to stoop, to demean, to lower. He lowers himself to be in relationship with us. Psalm 8. The psalmist writes this, What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you even care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you crowned him with glory and honor. What is man? That's what I sit there and say. I go, what am I? that you even think about me. In Job chapter 7, verse 17, he, he says the same thing. What is man that you should exalt him? That you should, and this is the phrase that gets me, set your heart on him. <laughs> this is so good. The transcendent God who's unable to be touched, reached, even compared to everything else that creates, that God has set his heart on you and I. He set his heart upon you and I. Don't make this generic. Make this personal. Think about God, huge and exalted, most high, and he has set his heart on you. Those two thoughts in concert for me, they make my soul come alive. And then verses like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Like, they really get some energy on them. Because if God is for me, for real, who can be against me? Who can, be, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. How, what can separate me from the love of God? Nothing. He has set his heart on me. 
He set his mind on me. That God who creates everything with words. He creates everything with words. He says light and light happens. Not the sun, light. He says words and everything creates. That God is thinking about me. (laughs) That God is for me. That God has set his mind on me. And it comes to this. The God who's most high creates everything, creates man, puts him in a garden, and he does the the strangest thing to me. Starts taking walks in the garden with the man. Isn't that a little bizarre? Uncreated God, he can blow up stars. I mean, he can do anything. I mean, go pyrotechnical, go, you know, special effects, whatever. He can do anything. And he's taking walks in the garden with the man. (laughs) Why? If he wanted the man to bow down, he could show up in a billion foot pillar of fire thundering at a million decibels (laughs) demanding the man to bow down. Instead, he shows up in some form and they take walks. And they talk. They're hanging out? Yeah, they're hanging out. Psalm 113 says he has to humble himself to even look at his creation. And that God shows up in the garden and is walking around taking walks with Adam. In the cool of the day, nonetheless, I mean, no less, so Adam doesn't get too sweaty, I suppose. I mean, in the cool of the day. God doesn't care what temperature it is. He shows up and walks around with Adam in the garden. (laughs) See, this is what should cause your heart to thrill. That the God of greatness, the God who is transcendent, the God who is towering over all creation, likes you. He likes people. He wants relationship. Divine condescension. His first act is he walks around in the garden with Adam. And then he gives Adam a helper. And then Paul tells us that that marriage between Adam and Eve, that that is a picture of another relationship. Jesus in the church. He's fully comprehending that he's going to have to redeem this man who he's walking around with. And so he gives him a helper so that man can be in relationship as a picture of his mode of redemption. Why is he going to have to redeem him? Because the man's going to get into sin. God's walking around in the garden with the guy he knows that's going to rebel against him in just a few days. (laughs) And he's giving him a helper to point to the measures of redemption. And why is he going to redeem him? Because he wants relationship with him. And I am touched over the God that desires relationship with people. The whole story of creation 
is God bowing down, God demeaning himself, God humbling himself for relationship. And therein, in those concepts of his amazing exaltation and the fact that he's willing to humble himself and then even do this, become a man and die as a man. Beaten and bloodied and bludgeoned. And he in no way, in no way, frustrates his own glory. Therein is the glory of God. The one who is so highly exalted is able and willing to humble himself so low to be in relationship with you and I. He is transcendent and he is condescending. Beloved, the story starts in a garden with God taking walks with a man We get the story of all creation, his choice of Israel to birth forth Messiah, to redeem a people, to have relationship. And after this whole thing is said and done, we mostly think we're going to heaven, up there to be with him. But the scripture is real clear. He's actually coming to earth. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It should absolutely blow our minds that the transcendent God wants relationship with men. And not them, those men out there somewhere. You and I. Me and you. The transcendent God, the God that's of another order. He loves to be divinely condescending because he's inviting us into love and into relationship. And I pray that our, our minds, our, our hearts would be shocked. They'd be shocked over the, the wonder of who this God is. They'd be, they'd be blown away over the concepts of, of the uncreated one who loves, who cares, who reaches low, who bows, who stoops. I want to get into this. I want to take a few weeks. I want to look at God. I want to think about God. I want to consider God. I want all the images that we've made of God that are too low about God, I want them to, I want them to begin to be broken. I want our hearts to come alive. I, I want that experience of, of joy in the revelation of the knowledge of who he is. 
So my heart began to unlock at just considering him in his transcendence, considering him in his greatness. And I began to just bubble forth with laughter. I thought, that's what my soul is made for. That I'm going to spend an eternity laughing before the throne of God at the greatness of who he is. Shocked and stunned and thrilled and wonder and, you know, reverent fear and, and holy ecstasy. I mean, just blown away. And that's what we're made for. And see, I oh, that we would lock our minds onto who he is. That every thought that's not worthy of him, that it would shrink and fail in light of the greatness of him. What is man that you should exalt him? What is man that you should set your heart on him, O oh Lord? Good. Okay, amen. Let's stand. Behold, our God is great. We do not know him. Now come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Behold, our God is great, and we do not know you. God, I pray where we've made idols in our minds who have conceived of things that are not worthy of you, I pray would you let them be dismantled before the truth of who you are God transcendent God most high God almighty God exalted, highly exalted. You're the one that sets your heart on men. Your thoughts of us are as many as the sand of the seashore. You've invited us into the love of the Trinity. You've invited us into divine love. God, let us see that just as you walked with Adam, you want to walk with us. Let us come to believe the truth of your greatness and the shock of your humility. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Release revelation to us, I ask. Great is our God.